Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for the rain. Thank you for your community. I lift up this evening to you. Bless my words. Um, May they be from you. In your name I pray. Amen. I have a confession to make as I start out here. Is this too loud? Too loud? Okay. All right. I have a confession to make as I start out here. I really want you to understand me. Want really isn't the right word. I demand that you understand me. I hate feeling misunderstood. When I finish tonight and we have a conversation in the food line, I want to know that you understood me. If you disagree with me, that's fine. We can talk about that. If you agree with me, but you want to clarify some point I make, great. We can talk about that too. But if I feel misunderstood, here's what's going to happen. I'll get a little lightheaded. I'll get this knot right in the middle of my chest. And I will either try to explain why what you have to tell me is not what I meant, or I'll go home and stay up an extra 30 to 40 minutes on the low end trying to work it all out in my head. I make a lot of effort to not be misunderstood. When I speak while I'm in the band... Lane tells me I sound awkward sometimes. It's, it's, whether I'm praying or talking about a song, I speak slowly. And I think over every word. When I write my sermons, when I'm speaking up here, I don't just write an outline or bullet points. I write every word. It's about 2,800 words for a 30-minute sermon at the pace at which I talk. And then I practice it several times so that I'm not just reading it. I make little changes with words and sentence structure, and I don't print it out until just before church so that I can make changes without wasting paper. I write out my sermon because I don't really have a great memory and I'm particular about words. I write poetry, I read a lot, and I I love words, and how picking the right word can change an entire narrative. And we're going to come back to that idea later. The fact that I speak slowly when I pray or that I write out my sermons in many ways is a good thing. I want to be careful about how I represent Jesus and the church, and I like words, and the longing to be understood is a good longing. But I have sinned against you. 
I have turned that longing into a demand. I demand that I be understood and it has an impact on my life. It impacts my relationships with my wife, with my family, with my coworkers, and it has an impact on how I interact with all of you in the community of God. We all have these little problems, right? The small things we run away from. Sometimes they're not so small, but we try really hard to avoid them. The things we're trying to avoid define the way we act. All the things we're afraid of, being out of control, feeling unsafe, feeling any kind of pain, being exposed, being misunderstood, the list goes on. We will not experience those things. We will avoid them at all costs. We will not let go of the safe places we have created for ourselves, even if it keeps us from a relationship with God, our communities, our wives, our husbands, our children, I will be understood. Even if it means that instead of hearing the way I have hurt my wife and responding to her, I will cling to the idea that if she just understood what I meant, everything would be better. And in the process, I do more and more damage to our relationship. So we're in this series right now called Zeph and Destruction. We're going through the Old Testament book, Zephaniah, and today we're going to look primarily at chapter 3, verses 9 through 13. We're going to be finishing up the series next week. Clearly, Zephaniah is a short book with just the three chapters, which is why it's called a minor prophet, minor referring to length rather than importance. So Zephaniah chapter 3, 9 through 13. Then will I purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my my worshipers, my scattered people will bring me offerings. On that day you will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me, because I will remove from this city those who rejoice in their pride. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill, but I will leave within you the meek and humble who trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong. They will speak no lies, nor will deceit be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down, and no one will make them afraid. So three weeks ago, we started in chapter one, and the thing I want to remember about that right now is that Eric talked about three people or groups of people. He talked about the priests, the king, and the wealthy. He pointed out that when Zephaniah talks about the destruction of Judah, these are the people he talks about. 
They were the people with the power to influence, to lead, and to provide. And yet they were the very people who were leading the nation away from, away from God, who abandoned the window, widow, the orphan, and the foreigner. If you read the New Testament, which is the story of Jesus and his followers, of God redeeming his people, especially in the book of Hebrews, you will find that we, the community of God, are a royal, are a royal priesthood. And in the kingdom of God, we are wealthy. And just like the people of Judah and, Je- and Zephaniah, we are bumping up against the holiness of God, and we are judged in the same way, and the same destruction is on us. And Eric invited us to consider what that looks like for us and to feel the heaviness of that destruction and to demonstrate outwardly the weight and the sadness of our own brokenness. And then two weeks ago, Eric talked about chapter 2. And he said that as the day of the Lord approaches, we are called to gather together and to seek God. And he gave us some ways to think about how we are gathering together and invited us to come together during the week and read the Bible in the community. And the reason I want to sort of recap all of this is because Zephaniah is such a short book, it's important that we remember the overall narrative. I could stand here right now and read the entire book of Zephaniah and still have about 15 or 20 minutes left to talk. I'm not going to, but I could. Yeah. (laughs) So this is where we are. There is a destruction coming, and in the face of that destruction, we should gather together and seek God. And then in chapter 3, we have a turn. And in the midst of the city of Jerusalem, in the midst of the community of God, we find that God has not abandoned us. Even though, in verse 1, it is called a city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled, the Lord is still within Jerusalem. I want to hold on to this word in verse 1, defiled, for a moment. When something is defiled, it means it is dirty or corrupted. But beyond that, something that is defiled cannot serve its purpose. We know here in the desert that water that has been defiled by salt cannot quench a dry and parched mouth. Thirst cannot quench your thirst. So it's important that in verse 9 the Lord says, Then I will purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord. This idea of God purifying our lips reminds me of two passages that I thought about a lot this week. And they're very linked for me. The first is Isaiah, the calling of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is one of the major prophets. It's got like 65 chapters, and I could not read all of Isaiah right now and still have time to talk. So, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. 
Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from to- with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And the second short passage that I want to look at is in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews is in the New Testament. It says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That's a contrast. So, Isaiah goes before the throne in the presence of God, and he immediately thinks, I am going to die. I am a man of unclean lips. I am going to die. It was a terrifying experience. And to stand in the presence of God and to receive the word that he was, to receive his calling, he had to have his lips purified by a burning coal. And then the writer of Hebrews says, it's cool. Go before the throne of grace with confidence. So what changed? Jesus. Right? The answer is Jesus. The sacrifice of Jesus is what purifies our lips. And as I read through Zephaniah this week, the thing I kept coming back to is the idea that this whole book is just the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's just the good news. We have a holy God and a broken people. And when the broken people bump up against the holy God, the brokenness becomes highlighted, and there is judgment and destruction. But the holy God desires relationship with his people. So he stays among them. He leads them, protects them, and tells them how they can enter his presence. But they walk away from him. They're self-seeking and broken. So because the holy God still desires relationship, he finds a way to heal the broken people so that they can enter into his presence. He sends his holy son Jesus to die for the broken people, to take on their guilt, so that they will be purified. And they, when they bump up against the holiness of God, the result is not destruction, 
but relationship. So we're at the turn in chapter 3. This is where our lips are purified. And we get to call on the name of the Lord and serve Him. We have been gathered together, and we, the meek and humble, will trust in the Lord. We will speak no lies. We will not be deceitful. We will eat and lie down, and we will not be afraid. It's great. I think we're done. Let's go home. Right? I mean, kind of. So, but why are we still afraid? Why are we so anxious? I still demand that you understand me. That hasn't changed from 10 minutes ago. So let's go back over this because Zephaniah is calling us to something more. He's not calling us to just stop at the purification of our lips. That is enough. And if the day of the Lord came today and we all went before the throne, we would be able to approach with confidence and all of that. But there's more. So we're going to go back to verse 9 and try and figure out what Zephaniah is calling us to. The first thing to recognize is that it's really easy for us to read this as a personal challenge, as something that we as individuals should be aspiring to, as a set of rules for us to follow. But I want to read this as a community because it's written to the city of Jerusalem and to the people of God, so we should read it as a community together. And there are three things that we are called to in this passage. Service, humility, and courage. So verse 9. Then will I purify the lips of the people, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, my scattered people will bring me offerings. So there's this military formation called the phalanx. Phalanx? That's how you say that, right? Phalanx? And the most popular version is from, from the ancient Greeks. It's from a long time ago. But it's all over history. The soldiers would go into battle. They'd stand shoulder to shoulder with these large shields, these really big shields that stretch from like your shoulder down to like your, your shin bone. Shin bone? Calves, shin bone. Shin bone. Ankle. That's the word. So, <laughs> so when the enemy came... Sorry. <laughs> so when the enemy came, they were confronted with a wall of shields and no clear place to attack. The soldiers stand shoulder to shoulder and protect one another. I'm not calling us to be self-protective or insular, but the, en- the Bible does say that we are in a fight with the enemy, and the enemy is seeking and prowling like a lion to attack. We are called to serve one another in community. When one shield falls, the gap is closed. We serve one another and provide for one another, and when we are wounded, we care for one another. In the Old Testament, there are many prophecies like Zephaniah about the destruction of Jerusalem. And the reason given again and again 
is that the people of Israel neglected the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner. In other words, those who were in most who were most in need of care and protection. And Jesus himself talks about caring for the hungry, the stranger, and the sick. And he says, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. And we can come together on Sunday nights. We can sing together. We can eat together. You can listen to me or someone else. We can pray and talk and all the things that we do on Sunday night. But if we end there, then this might as well just be a concert and a speech where we happen to eat together afterwards. What we do here has significance. Don't hear me saying that you shouldn't come on Sunday night. This is deeply important. But we should be called to action outside of Sunday nights. We should be in each other's homes, serving one another in the community. So this is the first thing that Zephaniah is calling us to as a community of God. We are called to enter into service. On that day, you will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me, because I will remove from the city those who rejoice in their pride. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill, but I will leave within you the meek and humble who trust in the name of the Lord. So we talked about pride a couple weeks ago, and the priests and the king and the wealthy, those that clung to their position and their power. They rejoiced in themselves and their pride. And we all sit here and think, well, that's not me. Thank God I am so meek and humble. Careful now. So remember I said I like words? I was talking to Eric about this passage earlier this week, and I said the word meek seems really nice. And I'm pretty sure it doesn't mean what we think of when we think of the word meek. So do this with me. This is audience participation time. Picture someone who is meek. Not someone you know. Just imagine an imaginary person with the defining quality of our imaginary person being meek. Now, Use some other words to describe them. Quiet, reserved, timid, gentle, what would you say? Scared, supportive, calm. These are great words. You guys are awesome. Yes. Controlled but powerful. These are, I mean, I'd, I'd like to be meek. I'd like to have a lot of those things said about me. The words I have are deferential, docile, gentle, passive, serene, subdued, submissive, timid, 
and unassuming. So this is what we think of when we think of the word meek. And the words that we think of for humble are pretty similar. We have a better idea of humble because we use it more. So I'm talking to Eric, and he looks it up. And the word in the, in the Hebrew is dal. D-A-L. Dal. Dal does not mean gentle or timid. It means weak, poor, lean, needy. In some translations, it says afflicted. The picture we should have when we read this passage is a person who has been stripped of everything. A people who are weak, poor, and needy, who have no other option but to seek refuge in the name of the Lord. They trust in the name of the Lord because they have nowhere else to turn. This is what we are called to. We are called to humble ourselves. We are called to remember that we are out of control. And no matter how, hold, how hard we hold on to our power, our money, or our pride, they can be stripped from us. We are called to utter humility. The next section says, The remnant of Israel will do no wrong. They will speak no lies, nor will deceit be found in their mouths. This is humility in the kingdom of God. That we be willing to recognize our pride and confess it to one another. And this is humility in the kingdom of God that we listen to confessions of pride and respond with grace. So the last thing we're called to is to have courage. They will eat and lie down and no one will make them afraid. I want to return here again to my confession. We are so driven by fear. It defines our actions. We are afraid to serve one another because we don't want to be taken advantage of. And we are afraid to ask for help because we don't want to be a burden. We do not confess because we are afraid of being judged and we do not listen to confession because we're afraid we won't know what to say. We live at a time when people are more anxious than ever. I'm not one to tell someone who's struggling with depression, don't be sad because I have struggled with depression. I know that doesn't work. I don't want to be the one to tell us as we struggle with anxiety, do not be anxious, or as we struggle with fear, do not be afraid. And yet God says, do not be afraid. 
And I picked the word courage because it means take heart. It does not mean there is no fear, but it does mean that we are not driven by fear. It means that fear says we should not go left and we go left. Again, though, these are things we are called to as a community. We are called to encourage one another. When we struggle or when we fall, our community is around us. We stand shoulder to shoulder. And last week, we were encouraged to reach out and take hold of God. And as I read this passage, I thought, how can we, when we are so busy holding on to other things, when we hold on to our demands and our pride? We are called to reach out to God and to take on his heart, and we are too busy clenching our fists behind our own backs. I don't like my ending. I wrote an ending. I don't like it. I don't know. This is what I want you to do this week. We talked a lot about service, and confession. So I want you to do one of two things. The first is to figure out how to serve someone this week. And we, we, we are so busy. We have no time. Find some time. Ask someone how you can serve them, even if it's in a small way. Call them. If you're thinking about someone this week, text them. Say, I'm praying for you. And confess to each other. Spend time tonight talking about pride, talking about the ways you struggle to let go of your pride and ask for prayer. Serve each other and confess to one another. That's what Zephaniah is calling us to. Let's pray. Oh, wait. Hold on. I got like five minutes. If anyone wants to say anything or ask a question. I think it depends on what you're proud about.
proud to um, yeah. Uh, I don't. I don't think necessarily that we remove ourselves from pride, but we have to be willing to talk about it. We have to be willing to to say, "I am, I am proud," um, because not being willing to talk about it is in itself, in a way, prideful. Yeah. <laughs> Ask to be served. Ask to be served. <laughs> yeah. It is. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your encouragement. Thank you for your community. I pray that we would have the courage to enter into service and confession. I thank you that you have purified our lips and that we can enter in before you. I pray that you would teach us what it means to enter in as a community, what it means to serve each other as a community. I pray that you'd bless this night, bless our conversation. Thank you, Lord. In your name I pray. Amen.